great to be with you on this beautiful Lord's Day in September. This is my favorite month of the year, especially, well, September and October are just tremendous months to be in the Northeast. Amen? Amen. And then we're going to have a heat wave for the next week. It's going to be in the 90s. So how about that? But beautiful song, Brother Nathan, thank you for leading us. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. If you're in Christ today, that is true of you. And we can celebrate that and worship our great God and King, Jesus Christ. So in our last sermon, we looked at three exhortations in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We called it the spiritual warhead, the RPG spiritual warhead. Do you remember that? And that spiritual warhead forms a tremendous impact for kingdom advancement. Rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks. Always having gratitude in all circumstances. And these don't come to us as just good advice. This is God's inspired word through the, uh, through the Apostle Paul to this church and through, to all Christians throughout time. These exhortations are God's revealed will for every Christian. Now, it's not all of God's will. We, we heard earlier in chapter 4, remember, it's God's will. This is God's will, your sanctification. So in the macro, it's God's will that his people are sanctified. Not just positionally sanctified, but progressively sanctified to become more and more like Christ. And the RPG forms a vitally important part of it. It's God's will that God's people be filled with joy, be filled with prayer, and be filled with gratitude. The more we're praying, the more we are thankful, and the more we're rejoicing, recognizing God's goodness and his faithfulness to us, the more we will be empowered to walk in the Spirit as God designed for his people to do. So let's read our text for today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 22. We're going to, Lord willing, we're going to take that last section, 23 through 28, in, uh, as one chunk on New Year's Eve. You ready for it? New Year's Eve. Usually I'm like every three months or so. This time I'm like four or five months. But we're going to be New Year's Eve. If the Lord wills and we live, we're going to be in our last sermon in First Thess chapter 5, 23 through 28, uh, the last day of the year. Here is 19 through 22. Let's read it along. This is uh, in the ESV. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would bring illumination and you would bring great blessing to your people today through the teaching and preaching of your word and that uh, you would bring things to mind that need to be said uh, that aren't in my notes here and that you would strike down things that are, that are in my notes that I shouldn't be saying Uh, But in any case, Lord, may you grant your people grace to listen proactively and then test all things that are said. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So, verse 19 talks about a spirit. Who is the spirit here? Well, I think it's the Holy Spirit. And we get that clue from three or four other times in this letter before this, where Paul mentions the Holy Spirit. It's not the human spirit. It's not, grieve, it's not quenching your own spirit. But this is the third person of the Trinity. He's a person. He's not an it. He was active in the creation of the world. He inspired our holy scriptures that we have. Theanustas, God breathed through the Spirit. Through men, yes, but He's the one who accomplished that purpose of giving us his word. He causes regeneration by shining light into our dead hearts, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. That's what God does in creating life. 
He causes us to see our sin. And He causes us to see Jesus as worthy of going to as the solution for our sin. He indwells believers. He seals us until the day of redemption. And it's remarkable, if you really think about it, the third person of the triune God dwells with you if you're His. You ever think about that? The incarnation is remarkable. The second person of the Godhead became a human being. But how about the third person of the Godhead dwells with you, dwells with us. He is here with us right now. He indwells believers. And that's amazing. Now, I know you know this, but you don't become a god. That's a different religion. That's the quintessential American religion. Out in Utah, we don't believe that. It's not Christian. But the Spirit of God dwells with you. The Spirit comforts us. He convicts us of sin. He gives us gifts to serve in the church. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. There's gifts that He gives to His people to accomplish His purposes. And what is his chief purpose? What's the chief purpose of the Holy Spirit? That is to affect the process of sanctifying, sanctification, and that is to conform us into the image of Jesus. I li- I'm going to list six New Testament commands about the Holy Spirit. I think they're going to be helpful for you. It's going to be a refresher, a reminder for, for you who know these. Um, the first four are going to be positive commands things to do, and then the last two are going to be negative commands, don't do. And that's where our text falls in um, today. So the first one, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Don't Don't be filled with wine, don't get drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Like a sail on a sailboat, be catch the wind of what God is doing. Be filled with the Spirit. Second Galatians 5.16 says, walk by the Spirit. So we're to be filled with the Spirit, and then we're to walk in the Spirit as we obey God's commands, as we obey that which He has revealed to us in His revealed uh, will in, in Scripture. Third, Galatians 5.25 says, keep in step with the Spirit, which means that we should have a walk that's worthy of, of our calling. Earlier in 1 Thessalonians 2, Ephesians 4, I think it is, that our calling is phenomenal and your walk should be in alignment with that. The walk and the talk should be uh, congruent, should be harmony there. Uh, next one, Ephesians 6, 18 and Jude one twenty both tell us to pray in the Spirit. To pray in the Spirit. We should be praying at all times according to God's will. And that's why we need to know God's Word so that we can pray God's will. And the Bible says that if we ask anything according to His will, that we'll have it. And there's great mystery there, and it's an amazing thing that God accomplishes His purposes through prayer. That's an amazing thing. We pray, and God's like, I've chosen to accomplish my purposes in the world through you weak, needy people that I've saved. And if you don't want to pray, I'm going to find someone else to pray to accomplish my purposes, which are sovereign, and they are great and amazing for the world as I restore all things to myself and reconcile all things. God is going to do that. Do we want to participate in that? So we pray in the Spirit. And then we have two don'ts here. Ephesians 4.30 says, don't grieve the Spirit. Pastor Eli mentioned that in his prayer uh, right at the beginning. Don't offend the Spirit by sinning. And the context is about body life. If If we remember Pastor Joe's great series through Ephesians, that whole section is body life. Uh, exhortations and body life encouragement. So 
when you sin against another person, you don't just hurt them, but you grieve the spirit that is within them. And then our text here today, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, do not quench the spirit. Quench means to uh, throw water on a fire, to extinguish it. It's in the present tense. So don't quench and continue to don't quench. Don't put the Spirit's fire out. One of the, um, one of the illustrations that from ancient Greek was a, uh, of, a, of, a, of a soldier in battle who would soak his shield in water so that when the fiery darts would come, they would hit that shield and they would be extinguished. And, and that was quenching the, those fiery darts. That's one illustration in non-biblical language, but we're going to see some more. I'm going to bring out some more here. Um, we think of quench, in, in modern American life, we think of quench your thirst, right? Gatorade, the thirst quencher. Um, your mouth is so thirsty, it's on fire, I'm going to quench it, right? Maybe good marketing there, but... This imagery is it's striking because the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture is portrayed as a fire, a, a burning fire, the fire burning in us believers. Uh, the, the Spirit, he gives us, as I mentioned before, he gives us passion for Christ. He, he fuels obedience for Christ. And, he, and as that sanctification process happens, he, he burns off the dross of our lives. He burns off that which is not Christ. He chips away those things that are not Christ to make us more like Christ. So what this text highlights here is that there is a way, don't quench the Spirit, there is a way to relate to the Holy Spirit that throws water on Him as a fire. There's a way to relate to the Holy Spirit that causes him to withdraw fellowship from us and diminishes the power for obedience. And it saps that subjective sense of assurance. And it drains our joy. It drains our peace and our gratefulness. That's what it does. Now, some of you may be thinking, isn't it kind of blasphemous to think or to say that we can somehow stop God or thwart God or quench God. This is the third person of the Holy Spirit. This is the third person of the Godhead. This is the Holy Spirit. He's God. Don't we believe in sovereignty around here at Bread of Life? He's the sovereign king of the universe. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. Romans eleven thirty six. Daniel 4 Verse 35, all of the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's who we're talking about. We're talking about God. So what's this talk about quenching the spirit? You. You can quench the spirit? How can we suppress his purposes? by our free will and our free agency. Well, a few thoughts come to mind. The imagery of the Holy Spirit as fire is true, of course. Paul gave us this in, his, in the Word, but it's only partial. Why is it only partial? Because the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit can be lied to. The Holy Spirit can be resisted. He can dwell in people and he can affect someone's thinking. And like fire, he can be quenched. Just like water has the ability to diminish the influence of fire, Paul says, don't quench the spirit. It can be done. And this is not an issue of suppressing by a greater power. Of course not but it's personally grieving and causing sorrow to his holiness. When we sin, it's like a lamp being pulled out of a dark room. So there's a distance from the influence of that holy lamp. God is holy. 
This is the Holy Spirit. So it's not blasphemy to say that we could quench God or grieve the Spirit, as we saw in Ephesians 4.30. God doesn't work out our sanctification like a cosmic, automatic vending machine. It's not mechanical like that. Do this, you put the right amount of money in the machine, and out comes the right candy bar. That's how God works. No, that's not how God works. We're in a cooperative relationship of sanctification. And we're working with a person. Being conformed to a person. Our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Amen? And God has decided that his level of influence is in cooperation with how we live and how we speak, our effort and our attitudes and our action. This is how God set it up. This seems so elementary, but I'm going to say it. God blesses obedience. And the reward is more of the best thing, which is himself. It's Christianity 101. Some of you know this from firsthand experience, how miserable it can be to live a life of constant quenching of the Spirit. And that makes personal, that makes uh, perfect sense when you think about it. That most of the most miserable people in the world are Christians who are trying to live with one foot in the world and one foot um, with the Lord. You have you have too much of God to really enjoy the world, and you have too much of the world to be on the page with God. So you're you're miserable. And it's quenching the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's main job to make, to make us more like Christ. And he's over here heating up the fires of sanctification. And he's doing that for a purpose. And if you think about that, that illustration of, uh, from Pilgrim's Progress, of, of the fire against the wall, God is working uh, sanctification in you if you're, his, if you're his. And he's doing this, this work. And the devil is throwing water on the fire. But God's on the other side of the wall, remember? With the oil. That's the image from the Pilgrim's Progress. And here you are, dumping buckets of water on the fire. Here, Satan, I'll join you in dumping water on the fire. I like my sin. You say, I love Jesus. Holy Spirit, I want more growth in godliness. But not today. Come on, Lord, I, I, I'm for you. But, you know, not today. You remember that famous uh, America's Funniest Videos clip where the little boy, he's there in the high chair, he's probably two years old, and the mom says, Okay, I have your vegetables here. It's time to eat your vegetables. And the kid goes, not today. And oh, come on, here's your vegetables. You got to have your vegetables. These are very important. Not today. Some of you know of seasons in your life where you were double-minded like this. I'm going to walk with God and do his will, but not today. That saps fellowship with God. And that's why if you're a Christian and you feel guilty when you sin, that's the Holy Spirit letting you know. That's not you. You've been bought with a price. You have a different identity. You're a Christian. And Paul knows that this is real life. This is the way the world is. And he says to the Thessalonians, don't quench the Spirit. So how can we quench the Spirit? We're going, to get to some, we're going to get to the next verse, which is don't despise prophecies, which I think is the next, which makes a whole lot of sense in the context. But here's a bunch that I know you know. You hear this often at Bread of Life, but I'm going to remind you of them. Number one, ways that we can quench the Spirit. Knowingly and deliberately stepping into temptation. That's the number one way. Some of you know when you're stepping into a zip code boundary that you shouldn't be in. 
you're getting close, and you can almost feel that little whisper. No, no. And it's not Jiminy Cricket on the shoulder. You know, remember that from Pinocchio? That's not Jiminy Cricket. That's your, that's your spirit-empowered conscience letting you know, this is not you. And you keep going, and what happens? You feel so empty. And that's the spirit withdrawing fellowship. This is a real thing. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't abandon you. But he, his influence is pulled back. Number two, a way that we can quench the spirit. Neglecting the spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible reading and fellowship. If you're not fanning the flames through the word and prayer and fellowship, then there's, where's the fuel for that fire to burn? I know many times in life, especially for those who are mature in their faith, it can get easy. I've seen this happen to people in the ministry where they have so much Bible knowledge. They've been there, done that, counseled. They've been through trials. They've been tested. And then they can get on autopilot. And they're not working to fan those flames and doing the basics of connecting with the Lord through prayer and Bible. Oh, I've, I've, I've read it so many times. And then you get dead on the inside. It's not a place you want to be spiritually. The people that deconstruct their faith, you've heard about these people, like, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, and I'm, I'm leaving the faith. It doesn't, it, it, that doesn't arrive like the 82nd Airborne all at once. It happens from years and years of going through the motions with none of the Spirit's power in the sale. So don't neglect the spiritual disciplines. Number three, way that we can quench the Spirit, deadening your spiritual taste buds with screens. We are surrounded by these uh, pocket computers. They're amazing. They're great tools. Um, it's digital heroin, as I like to call it. Entertainment, sports, video games. The dopamine that hits our brain when we scroll, <laughs> when we get that text, ding! It's real stuff going on in our brains. And we have to be self-controlled. And we have to take that into an account. Why do you think the communists want every 15 to 30-year-old hooked on make-believe and fantasy worlds? Because they don't want those 15 to 30-year-olds engaging in the real battle. Real spiritual battles. It's a great deception by the devil and his team. To, to keep people from seeing the real drama of history, but get them hooked on Candyland and hoops and ladders of this life with video games and porn and all the other junk. Number four, way that we can quench the spirit. We do it by failing to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. To say something when we should say something. To evangelize when we're supposed to evangelize. Or maybe say a hearty amen. If you feel like, hey, I, it's, amen, I, I, I agree. Our amens in this church are not just for Rob Scarpati and, and, and Eli and Joe and a few others. You can say an amen if you hear it. Amen. They're not the only ones who have something to say. We can all say that. But if the Spirit prompts you to say something, say it. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself because we're, we're going to get into prophecy in a minute. Um, but I, I, I do remember there were times um, in uh, some of the home fellowships back in Hawthorne when we had the home fellowship in our, in our house, there were some new believers there. I think of one in particular. Our brother Izzy Rodriguez was a new believer. And he would say things at times, and he would say, um, you know, I, I don't know... Um, I don't know why I'm, you know, you guys all know this, but I, you know, it just came to my mind, and uh, it's like, no, say it. The Lord is, is, is it's, let's see if the Lord is bringing this to your mind. I need to hear that. 
Um, he would say something that would seem obvious, but it would, it would bring a different shade or a light on the text in a way. And, and he had the Holy Spirit. But he would be like, no, brother, I, I want you to say what the Lord is prompting you to say. And if we, if we resist that and the Lord is bringing something to say to someone or evangelize or to bring a word, um, and you go, ah, I'm not going to say, well, don't do that. That quenches what the Spirit is doing. So we as fallible human beings can quench the Spirit. God is holy. Sin disrupts fellowship. Let's not throw water on the fire. We need to feed the fire with truth and obedience and prayer and His grace to do that every day. So let's move to verse 20. I'm uh, taking a little bit longer than I had thought originally. So let's, uh, verse 20 says this, do not despise prophecies. Now, I would argue when um, we despise prophecies, like I said, in the context, I think that's a way that we can quench the Spirit. But let's just talk about this. This word for despise here, it means to treat with contempt. It means to treat with no value, to look down upon. In Romans 14.3, the same word is used about looking down on another believer who, over issues of conscience. So don't have that attitude where you look down on someone um, who may you know, have that, you know, you have that judgmental attitude, let's say, and you look down upon them with contempt. Um, don't look down... Don't look down on prophecy, is what it says. Now, some of you are like, hey, I don't look down on or treat with contempt real prophecy, but I do the phony stuff. You see, I'm a cessationist, and all those, all those gifts are gone. Like Frank Sinatra, like Elvis and his mom, they're gone. This verse has nothing to do with me in 2023, you may say. Don't despise prophecies. That was for then. We're further along the trail now. And I get it. This is the number one reason we would despise prophecy, or I should say, I think we all, are, we all know of those main reasons because of the misuse and the abuse of charismania and all those Pentecostals. We've all heard about some guy standing up at a big venue. I'm a prophet. Listen to me. He didn't study the Bible. He has no idea how to handle the word rightly. But I'm a prophet. I'm a prophetess. And I get the spotlight on me, you see, and that's very powerful. And I get all the fanfare because I'm a spokesman of God. I'm a difference maker. I speak to him, and I'm the friendliest of friends of God. You better listen to me, what I'm going to say. And people's consciences are bound by this. And it's terrible. Because after all, he's speaking for God. Now, I'm a functional cessationist in many ways, as are most of you. But if you're a cessationist, I want you to be open to at least understanding the different perspectives on this issue of New Testament prophecy, at least in the reform, uh, evangelical reform world. I, I think you should know what those perspectives are. And I know I'm stepping into some waters of controversy, controversy here. Um, there's a lot of debates over what, the what and the how of prophecy. What was the gift of prophecy in the New Testament? And is it still in operation today? And if it is still with us, how does it operate? Most of you are familiar with the two main camps. I mentioned the word cessationist, secede, that there's an ending of those gifts. Cessationist and continuist. Those are the, the two big broad buckets. And there's views uh, on the extremes and within each of those camps. And then there's, I like to call tweeners, who hold that some there's some, I like a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And some of you don't like that, I know. You don't like to be called a tweener, which probably means you are that. <laughs> I'm not going to be engaging with the Pentecostal or the charismatic forms of continuism. 
I, I just I think those are outside the pale. Um, I'm going to be engaging right now with the main uh, reform evangelical continuist view and the cessationist view. Um, I'm going to chalk the lines and I'll uh, going to speak to this uh, continuist view, which is most commonly connected with uh, a man named Wayne Grudem. He has a section in his systematic theology on this topic, and also he's written a bunch of books on what this thing is called, uh, that he calls New Testament prophecy. If you want to know more on this topic, I would encourage you to check out a helpful uh, discussion, dialogue, uh, done about 10 years ago in Cambridge, England, between Wayne Grudem and a Presbyterian pastor uh, who, uh, uh, I think he's Scottish, if I'm not mistaken, but he preaches in, um, in, in, in England. Uh, and they, uh, they spoke on this topic. They sat down with a moderator. It's about an hour long. You can find it online. And Hamilton, the other guy's name, Ian Hamilton is the Presbyterian guy's name, and then the, uh, the continuist is Wayne Grudem. And the Wayne Grudem position is, uh, it's, it's not a majority view, but it's held by um, some uh, uh, big names like um, uh, John Piper, Sam Storms, some people in that, uh, in that flow. But the, the cessationist position of Ian Hamilton would be the main reform understanding. So Hamilton uh, comes from that line of John Owen and John Calvin. Not bad company, but you know that's, that's their view. Now, as a cessationist, Hamilton contends that uh, there's only one kind of prophecy or prophetic gift in the New Testament, and it would be equivalent to prophecy in the Old Testament. He actually used a word that I never heard before. I think it's an a interesting word. He uses the word univocal, which he used to describe the unambiguous singular expression and voice on the issue. So he says, there is one voice in the Bible on prophecy, and it's the same in the old and the same in the new. And from this perspective, prophecy consists of error-free revelation from God. It's infallible, it's authoritative, so much so that the prophet can say, thus says the Lord, with absolute accuracy. And Hamilton argues that the gift of prophecy was, and this is standard cessationist um, understanding, he argues that, the prophet, that prophecy was for the foundation age of the church. So all sign gifts like tongues and prophecy, they all went away with the apostles when the foundation age ended. They're gone, like yesterday is gone. So the other side would be the continuist uh, position, or continuationist. I know I've heard both, but continuist is uh, shorter. I'll use that for now. Grudem argues that there are two kinds of prophecy or prophetic gifts in the New Testament. There's the apostolic prophecy, which was fallible. I'm sorry. It was infallible, authoritative, and foundational. So apostolic prophecy, that kind of prophecy alone is equivalent to Old Testament prophecy. And it ceased after the time of the apostles. So we're all on the same page there. Apostolic prophecy, that's, that goes in alignment with Old, Old Covenant prophecy as well. They're kind of on the same track. But in Grudem's view, he cites that there is a second type of New Testament prophecy, and he calls it congregational prophecy. And he bases this on 1 Corinthians 14, which is an extensive chapter on tongues and prophecy. And he also goes to other passages, um, uh, Romans 12, where he says the prophecy is a gift. And along with all these other gifts, so there's no reason to say this one should be, that, that one's gone, but these other ones will keep. So um, this form of congregational prophecy that Grudem highlights here is, is he calls it, he says it's fallible, it's non-authoritative, and it has continued through our church age. So uh, the congregational prophecy, according to Grudem, 
is not on par with Old Testament prophecy. And therefore, it bypasses all of those Deuteronomy texts about how to judge uh, prophecy. Um, and it's probably, this is Grudem's point. This is his main point. He says it's probably better to just think of it like spirit-led advice or guidance. But he uses the word prophecy because this, that's what he says that the text uses for this, for, uh, to describe this. Um, and it generally, he says it generally consists of personal impressions from God, which are then interpreted and reported to the congregation or to a person. And sometimes these are wrong. It could be the Lord bringing something to mind, or it could be the pasta primavera from last night. We don't know. The congregation is not bound to obey these words of prophecy in this congregational sense of New Testament prophecy. But the congregation should consider them carefully within the greater context of life and test all things according to Scripture. The big text on this is 1 Corinthians 14. It's the main text that shows the discontinuity from the foundational the apostolic type of prophecy, which is static, that's Bible, those are God's words for God's people for all time until Christ returns. Nothing's changing there. That's foundational apostolic prophecy, but he buckets this other one out. And Gruda makes the point that 1 Corinthians 14 lays out New Testament prophecy in a way where, uh, just like the priesthood, used to be a select group of people in the Old Covenant. Now, in the New Covenant, the priesthood is for all believers. And we are all priests. And that's how it got expanded. And we're all a kingdom of priests. And then following Joel's prophecy in Joel 2, now prophecies have expanded from a select group of prophets to where Paul could say, I want all of you to prophesy. It says that. And the church should eagerly desire to prophesy. 1 Corinthians 14.39 says that. And the reason why he says that, according to this view, is because this congregational prophecy, it's about encouraging and it's about building up the body. So according to Grudem, it's a new thing. It's not on par with old covenant infallible words of God uh, spoken through man. That's not what he's talking about. As a reminder, I, uh, 10 years ago, Pastor Joe went through 1 Corinthians uh, through the whole letter, um, and he spent a great time in uh, chapter 14. I think he did a marvelous job of handling those texts, so I would encourage you to go check those out. Now, the pragmatist in me sees how clean the cessationist position is when it comes to the sign gifts. They're gone. It's easy to just see them all like they were for a time. They're not any longer, and it makes church life and church practice very simple. At the end of the apostolic age, when the canon of scripture was completed, that's when the sign gifts went, goodbye, the door is shut on anything tongue or prophecy related. But Proverbs 14.4 comes to mind. Where there are no oxen, the, bar the barn stays clean. But the oxen make for much increase. As messy as it seems especially when we look at the abuses and the misuses, there's something here for us that is good for us. Or else we wouldn't have it. The text of the New Testament, I think, is unambiguous about these gifts. It says over and over, don't despise them. Earnestly desire them, especially that you would prophesy. Now, I think you can make some very good arguments from history and experience and from theological models and from theological systems that these gifts have ceased. But you can't make that directly from the New Testament. The New Testament speaks pretty clearly. Amen. Now, there were times in that discussion uh, between Hamilton and Grudem where it sure seemed like practically they were very close. Where both cessationists and reformed evangelical continuists would believe that God leads and God guides. He does this individually and personally by the Holy Spirit. 
They both can agree on that. Now, there's people on the fringes who would be cessationists, and they would say, you know, God only speaks through the words of the Bible. Even when you preach, you don't speak the words of God. You only speak the words of God when you actually read the words. So there are strict cessationists who say that. Then there's others on the other side, on the continuous side, who say that the, the office of prophet's still there, and you can still speak on par with Scripture, and thus saith the Lord. So there's, um, there's people that are problematic. There's problematic uh, understandings on both sides, I would say. And I think I'm in the, I'm in the, um, the middle here in, in, our, in our body. Uh, but there's some helpful questions I'm going to just throw out to you here. Does God's Spirit bring to mind certain things to say to other people? If you're His, does God's Spirit work in you to bring things to mind? Does God's Spirit grant divine insights into a person's life to confront sin or to edify, exhort, or comfort? Does God ever allow someone to be empowered by the Spirit to read somebody else's mail, so to speak? Does God's Spirit speak to and through someone to apply truth that illuminates, corrects, or convicts someone about their relationship with God? So the great majority of cessationists believe that God still does that. But they wouldn't call it prophecy. The Grudem continuist position calls that New Testament congregational prophecy. And he's very frank about that in that discussion. He even says, he goes, it would save me a whole lot of trouble if I just didn't call it prophecy. <laughs> but I'm calling it because it's what's used to describe this thing, this phenomenon that happens in the New Testament church that I think we still can operate in. Sometimes they're from God, sometimes they're not. But as Grudem says in the dialogue, we should put it in the same category, same category of advice from friends or preaching. Some preaching is good and true and right. And even from the same pastor, maybe something's out of alignment. So you need to test it, which brings us, let me keep moving along, verse 21 and 22. Test everything, but test everything. So, so don't quench, don't despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Either way, when the inputs come, we're to test them. Regardless of where you may be on that issue, whether you call it prophecy or spirit-led guidance, there's a personal responsibility on each Christian to test and approve what those inputs are. And be like the Bereans who were stated to be more noble than the, first, uh, than the Thessalonians. Who were, that's who this letter was written to. They were more noble than them. Why? Because they, they, they were eager to receive, but then they went and checked. Let me go check, get the checklist out, make sure that this guy is saying in alignment with the, what is true. And, and that was before the canon was closed, which is another can of worms I'm going to leave over there on the shelf. So this word for test here means to examine, to interpret, to uh, discern, to discover. And we're called to develop this discernment in our listening. The church is called to be testers of what we hear. Whether it's prophecy in the 1 Corinthians 14 sense or in preaching. And by the way, that was the Puritan view. The, one of the main Puritan views was, uh, I think it was William Perkins. He wrote a book, The Art of Prophesying. And, and they, their view is that preaching in the New Covenant is, is on, on the same level as this view of prophecy. So prophecy is preaching. And I, I, that's not my personal view. I think that's where a lot of prophecy takes place, though, is in preaching. So regardless, we have to know that there's, there's false teachers out there. There's people speaking untruth. There's people speaking falsehoods. There's false prophets out there. And it's the church's job, it's our job, to discern between truth and error. We have to test everything. Everything that you heard me say today, you're supposed to test it. Yes, receive it, but test it and believe what it is. But hold on to what's true and act 
accordingly. Like a conveyor belt at the grocery store. Here comes the inputs. Here comes the, here comes the stuff down the conveyor belt. Test it. Okay, is this good? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to receive it, but I'm going to test it. I'm going to cling to it, or I'm going to abstain from it. Now, how do we do that? Do we use our feelings to do that? How do you feel about this one coming your way? No, that's why we have this. <laughs> Amen? The way we do this and test is by studying the scriptures. We do this by studying the Bible in the context of our community groups on Friday nights and together uh, Sunday mornings and informally during the week when we're at each other's homes. God uses that, those times to cultivate in us a persevering spirit of discernment. Now, one of the challenges, you guys know this, of the early times, the early church, is, uh, and, and 1 Thessalonians was probably the, one of the first letters that Paul wrote. Uh, one of the challenges in many places was Paul having to refute and correct the false teaching and the false prophets. And so many times we see Paul doing that in his writing, and we see it in James, we see it in John, we see it in Jude. How do we do that? Well, we do that by knowing the Word, memorizing the Word, meditating on the Word, listening to the Word, just constant intake and prayer. You've heard it before. You, 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 uh, you want to you know where the, uh, counterfeit, what, a, what a counterfeit bill looks like? You don't go about studying all the different counterfeit money. You study the real article in meticulous detail that within a few seconds you'll be able to spot a phony and a fraud. There's many ways to counterfeit, but if you know the real thing, you may not be able to see it right away, but your, your Holy Spirit spidey sense goes up and you're like, hmm, yeah, that's, that, uh, something's not right. And you will discern something isn't right. I've had that happen many times. When, when I'm reading a tweet, I'm like, oh, it's a good tweet. Oh, no, that's not good. Or an email. Or anything. Movie. Hey, what's this movie about? I'm going to sit down and spend two hours watching this movie? What is it about? Discern. Test it. Don't waste your time on it. Just because. And if you're, you think you made a right decision, and you turn that movie on, after 20 minutes, it's trash. What do you do? Turn it off. I'm gonna, I had enough of that. It's okay. I had enough of that. If someone gives you a plate of food and it's got some, something in it that's not right, you know, something that's sour or bad, you don't be like, I'm just going to keep eating it and it's okay. My stomach is like steel. I'm going to just be fine. No, you're like, oh, yeah, that's not it. That is not it. But God gives us his spirit to discern and to... Um, to use it. And corporate discernment is necessary as a church. So we want balance. We want the windows to be open to the work of the Lord and the breath and the movement of the Spirit of God to come in, but we need the screens to be up, the, the screens to be on. The screen is God's truth. You don't, you don't want to go to the extreme and put the fire out, right? To a person who's just legalistic or formalistic, they'll just slam the window down. All right, I don't want none of that. It's messy. But the opposite extreme is someone who has the window open to everything and anything that would go through. So we want the windows open, but the screen's in place so we can discern the things that are being taught and being communicated to us. We want the fire, but we need the fire in the fireplace. We don't want the fire going all over the house and burning everything up. All right, enough with your analogies. Let's move along. Paul says elsewhere regarding the spiritual gifts. Everything's got to be done in, in, in order, decently and in order. There's a way to do these things. Now, do, do we have it all figured out? If somebody's at a, at a home fellowship and says, I, I think um, the Lord's guiding me to say this to you, um, I don't think you should go on that missions trip, Jay. I, I just feel very strongly that you should not go on the mission. Now, depending on who says it to you and how they say it and when they say it, you're like, I don't, I'm not even planning to go on a missions trip, dude. <laughs> now, you have to weigh it.
But I, we've had people say those things. We want to be open to the Spirit's leading, not quenching, but testing, holding to the good, abstaining from the evil. And very practically, those gifts, they operate best in small groups and small settings uh, with people who have earned your trust over time. I can tell you, if there's someone, we're having a small group at someone's house and someone shows up and starts talking and says, you shouldn't go on the missions trip this summer. I feel the Lord leading me to say this to you. Don't go on the missions trip. I would take that on board a whole lot differently than if Pastor Joe said that to me. Joe said that, or Eli, or one of our pastors, or one of the people that have earned their, my trust over years. Okay, I'm going to test it. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to seek counsel, seek godly counsel on that. Maybe there's a reason the Lord brought that to mind for brother to say that. But he's not going to quench the spirit and not say it. He should say it. So let's, let's, let's uh, put a bow on the message today. We're to live in a way where we shouldn't be quenching the Spirit, but we should be fanning the flames of the Holy Spirit influence and power in our lives. If the Lord brings something to say to your mind, to your heart, um, take a step of faith and say, Lord, is that you? I'm going to say it. I've, I've been, I, I think I shared this years ago in a, in a teaching I was on a plane one time, and I came. I sat in the way back, and a lady came on the plane, sat right next to me, and she said, "When I got on the plane, I saw you, and I knew you. I know you have a word for me." I said, "What?" And right then, Isaiah sixty-four four came to my mind. Why? I don't know. I said, "Isaiah sixty-four four. That's your word." And. Um, no eye has seen, no ear has heard the wonderful things that God has prepared for those that love him. She starts crying. That's it. That's what I needed to hear from the Lord. I said, wow, that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a couple of others like that that have happened. I'm like, why is, or seen people like, how did you know that? Joe's preached things. Eli's preached things where he's preaching and he's saying things. He goes, that was for me. How did he know I needed to hear that? That could be a part of the prophetic, um, spirit-led, empowered word that comes through his people. He illuminates our understanding, and he makes our affections alive, the light and the heat. So let me ask you as we close, do you see the evidence of the spirit's power in your life? I'm not talking about arriving in full bloom, but do you see the initial and the increasing influence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Do you care when you make decisions to think, what would please God? What would honor God? What would bless my brothers and sisters? Are you growing and walking in righteousness and overcoming sin? Are you seeing more love in your life? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are you seeing the fruit of the Spirit? You, can't, you can go take some apples and go, oh, look at this nice big apple. I'm going to tap it onto this tree. The tree's dead. You see that apple, it looks good, but it didn't bear from the sap and root and life of the tree. When you're honest with yourself and you do an assessment, is your life bearing those fruits? And you can't just see, that, see those things in a silo. You can't see those things in isolation. We need the body. We need each other to go, brother, I've seen some things in your life I just want to praise God for. I, I've noticed uh, more, more, uh, more of a uh, spirit of goodness. I mean, you're, you're striving to, uh, to see what is good and true and lovely and go for it. And, and we should encourage each other in that way. Now, um, are you seeing, here's another question, are you seeing more humility and happiness and holiness in your walk with Christ? Charles Spurgeon liked to put those things together. Holiness, happiness, and humility. 
If you're not, why not? If you say, yes, I do, I I can see the influence of the Spirit in my life, but I want more of it, then praise the Lord, because you didn't do that of yourself. That's the Lord's work. All the good fruit is to the glory of God and the magnifying of Christ and His grace, because He has given you His Spirit. And as Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's the Spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. 1 Corinthians 15, one of my favorite verses, Paul says, I worked harder than all of you, but it wasn't me. It wasn't I, but it was Christ working in me to accomplish his purposes. So, what if it's a no? What if it's a no that, you're, that, that, you, that you don't um, have any influence of the Spirit? So, either the spirit is grieved, or he's absent. That's the reality. If you don't have any of those fruit, either he's not there, or you're grieving him. If you don't have the joy in the gospel, and the joy of the Lord, in hearing and reading the word, or singing the praises of God, or in sharing the truth of the gospel, or joy and desire to fellowship with other Christians, if you don't have that, if you don't have joy and love for those things, it's because the, the Holy Spirit is absent in your life. You need God to perform a miracle. So cry out to God and say, Lord, grant me the Spirit. Grant me those desires. And if you do, the incredible thing is, you realize that the hound of heaven was already on your trail the whole time. He was on the scent. Because those prayers of honest desperation and need for God, they please God. Remember, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Faith pleases God. So if you're expressing some faith, God is working that in. Or you may be a Christian, and you realize, you're like, no, I know I've closed with Christ. I know God has worked in my life. I know he is working in my life. But I know I've grieved the Spirit. What should you do? Three things, and they all start with R. Lots of this is warmed over Spurgeon. A lot of Puritan, uh, reheated, reheated Puritan stuff. Number one, recognize. We need to recognize your sin for what it is. Your sin is foolishness. You've been trying to breathe through your ears or breathe through your eyes with duct tape on your mouth and duct tape on your nose. You can't. God designed humans to breathe through their nose and their mouth. That's it. And if you're trying to live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit, that's impossible. The Christian life is a supernatural life. You cannot live the Christian life without the Spirit. Number two, so we, we, we recognize first, then we rejoice in God's mercy. Yes, rejoice always. We, we, we went over that. But rejoice that you have God's mark. You have God's seal, Ephesians 1 says. His influence may be diminished in your life, but if you're his, his mercy is still flowing. And you have sinned over and over and chose selfishness. Not today, Lord. I don't want to follow you today, but rejoice that God is merciful and he may be gracious to blow with fresh fire if this third thing happens, which is, to return, to repent. You return to the cross. You come back to the fountain that is open for sinners and for those who are unclean. 1 John 1, 9. He is faithful and just... Um, uh, start it out for me. Um, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is true. So we come back to the cross and we confess, and we repent, and we pray the way David prayed in Psalm 51, which we're going to sing in just a little bit. Lord, renew me, restore me, revive me, refresh me. We need the Spirit to take these steps towards us as we take our steps towards Him in repentance. So we come to the cross first, empty-handed, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. So in closing, here's my encouragement. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies, regardless of what you think they may be. 
Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from evil. Be filled with the Word and be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit's light and the heat to do this vital work of testing. Here comes the stuff down the conveyor belt. How do you know what it is? You're going to test it. You need the light to see and to test so that you know what to abstain from and what to cling to. Test everything that comes our way. Emails, advice, preaching, tweets, movies, you name it. See what's good, hold fast to it, cling to it, and that which is evil, reject it, send it far away. We live in an amazing time to be alive in the history of the world. We have the Bible. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the church. And we look back at thousands of years of God's faithfulness and goodness to his people. And we could say that right now, God in the person of the Holy Spirit is working and guiding believers to accomplish his purposes in the world as he makes all things new. And he grants supernatural wisdom and understanding and application and ability and words of warning and encouragement for the building and the edification of the church. So, brother and sister, may we step into the great blessings that are ours in Christ because the Spirit dwells in us and is with us daily to empower us to live this life. Amen. Brother Rob is going to pray and ask God to um, accomplish his purposes through what we just heard in his word.